if we can start to even foster a little bit of an interest, like a passion, I think, you know, with, with CLS, it's, it's such an incredible opportunity and people are developing those interests, but they're also in college and, you know, like that's, that's frankly a little late. And so if we can start earlier with this letter program, I guess, you know, small steps, but yeah, that's the goal. Hello and welcome to What Do We Call This, a CLS Alumni Society podcast that aims to center voices, conversations, and experiences often left out of the narrative around immersive cross-cultural exchanges. My name is Miriam Tinberg. I did CLS Arabic in Amman, Jordan in 2012, and then did an ETA Fulbright in Rabat, Morocco in 2014 to 2015. And my name is Ashley Rivenbark, and I did CLS Chinese in Hangzhou, China in 2014. Hello, my name is Naika Pierre. I did the CLS China program in Suzhou in 2014. I'm the current producer of the What Do We Call This podcast series. And my name is Gabriel Carrillo. I did CLS Turkish in Baku, Azerbaijan in 2018. And I am the current editor of the podcast series. So we are really excited to, to have you all on. I think we normally, people don't talk that much about sort of how CLS has like a lot of people aren't actually using the languages that they <laughs> that they studied in CLS in their current <laughs> professional lives. And I'm not sure, I know that, um, William, you're a student, but um, uh, Jessica, I'm, I'm curious sort of if if this nonprofit, I imagine, is not what you do full time, or maybe it, maybe it's crazy successful and it is, but would sort of love to see, would love to know more about how you're actually using the Chinese um, and why you're like, you know, continuing um, in that direction professionally with the nonprofit. So um, maybe it makes sense to sort of intro um, you know, the organization a little bit more and how you both got connected and, and sort of what brings you to the podcast today. Sure. Uh, yeah. So my name is William Yi. I'm a rising junior at Columbia University studying political science and East Asian studies. I did CLS uh, summer 2019 in Changchun, China. Um, and my name is Jessica Ju. I'm from the Seattle area, currently right there right now. Uh, Will and I did CLS Changchun together in 2019. Yeah. And then I went straight into a Fulbright in Taiwan, like literally flying from China to Taiwan right after I was in Taiwan. Um, and yeah, I graduated from Carnegie Mellon University in 2018. Wind of the world. Um, I, uh, I guess I kind of started with this idea. Um, my sister went to a Mandarin immersion elementary school. Um, these are, you know, very growing. It's very gr- much growing around the U.S. Um, and she really enjoyed the experience. And she had a pen pal uh, through that school. And um, she said that it was really enriching for her to actually be able to, you know, like connect with someone from a different country. And that's an opportunity that we get as all people who've attended CLS to actually go to that country. But obviously, you know, that's that's an opportunity that's few and far between. So we thought, how can we sort of bring that CLS experience maybe in a more, um, you know, on a smaller scale, but nevertheless an important one uh, to students in the U.S.? And so our program, Window to the World, is a pen pal partnership. Um, we, we're creating pen pal partnerships between schools in the U.S. and uh, schools in Chinese speaking regions. Um, and so, yeah, Jessica and I have been working on this for a while now, and uh, it's it's been really, really great. Uh, we've been talking to a lot of Mandarin immersion elementary schools to start off um, and helping them find uh, partner schools in Taiwan and China. Um, and we are planning on rolling out the program in the fall. So a lot of this summer work is sort of uh, forming these partnerships. We're creating instructional content. So we're actually using some of the Mandarin we learned on program um, wow. to make these lesson plans for teachers uh, just to help them out. Yeah. 
Wow. So now this is pen pal, like writing letters, not phone based, or is it emails? Anything in between? Um, uh, we're yeah. kind of, it kind of depends. So we were thinking there's benefits to both online communication and physical communication. Yeah. Um, with the coronavirus right now, we're not sure how the letter sending will actually go. So yeah. we've, the schools have been interested in email or like having the students write out a letter and then take a picture of it and then send it via email. <laughs> so that's like a middle ground. This is a very interesting idea. I love this. So, so the goal is to, you want to work specifically within the like, um, Chinese immersion schools, right? So we, as opposed we- to any American public school or whatever? So we thought we would start out working with uh, Chinese immersion schools, but obviously a lot of Chinese immersion schools are tend to be populated by heritage speakers, people who mm. sometimes have experience already at home with Mandarin. And obviously the goal you know, of programs like CLS of ours is to increase the reach even more than that. Um, and so eventually we are hoping to expand to American public schools. Um, I guess it's just tough because this is kind of like a language supplement, um, but if we were to take that tack of expanding to American public schools, which we hope to do eventually, it would be maybe a more cultural tilt. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like the language barrier aside, because I mean, I guess pragmatically, it's kind of tough to uh, teach Mandarin from scratch, um, I, I guess through a pen pal partnership. But what we can do is uh, show, highlight some differences in culture. Um, both students can, I mean, students can communicate in English and, uh, they could learn a lot about what, what I guess cultural daily life is like in China too. Are you thinking of um, sticking to the middle school range? Um, I ask that because I think sort of a lot of high schools I imagine now do Chinese instru- instructions, mm-hmm. um, but sort of for like older, I know that my high school, um, I think my senior year, they like just started their Chinese program and I think it's still going strong. So right now we're aiming for elementary and middle school. Um, I'm not going to rule out expanding to high school because I feel like that would be a good move. And a lot of high schoolers are interested in learning languages in a more serious manner. Yeah, I think the idea behind starting with elementary and middle school specifically is, um, well, I guess, you know, taking China, for example, they um, in China, you know, nationwide are starting to learn English in, in the public schools around third grade. Um, and so, you know, earlier, the earlier, the better, as most people say, with learning foreign languages. Mm-hmm. So now we'll, I think we'll probably, I'm very interested in this um, organization. I think we're going to keep talking about it. I'm specifically interested in the ways that you all think that pen pals is like an avenue to mm-hmm. increase cultural awareness as opposed to some of the other kind of whatever social media or whatever else we are just sort of surrounded by. Um, so maybe we can pivot a little bit into the diversity and inclusion aspect. And we'll start with you all and then we'll go back to window to the world. So typically what we do, and I hope you all receive the question sheet to sort of get a lay of the land of this, but typically we like to ask each person, um, who are you? Summarize your identity. You know, who's in the room with us right now? And it could be, you could answer it basically whichever way you'd like, however you see yourself um, or you think you're seen or or whatever. I guess ethnically, I'm Chinese American. Uh, my mom's from Taiwan. Uh, my dad uh, was born in the U.S., but his family comes from the Guangdong province. Um, so I guess I would identif- identify as a somewhat of a heritage <laughs> Chinese language learner, although I spoke English at home throughout growing up. Um, and so... And then I guess, aside from that, I'm also a student, a journalist, political junkie. Um, for me, so my family is also from Southern China, but 
um, they came to the U.S. or my parents came to the U.S. like late teens or as an adult. So then when I was growing up, we spoke Cantonese in the home and English. So I am a heritage speaker in that sense. But since my family speaks Cantonese instead of Mandarin, it's not completely heritage speaker. That's very interesting. So I went the whole <clears throat> CLS Arabic route. And so I'm, we, we have a lot of people on the podcast who come from CLS Chinese and it's fascinating because I just, frankly, we don't, I mean, to your point, William, we don't, I was not one of the people who started studying Chinese or East Asian languages in college. And so already yeah. most people probably don't know this, the kind of the, the nuances between the language, mm. even if you, you start studying it in college. And I'm just like, yeah, so that's, that's really, really interesting. So Jessica, then when you were in China, so the part of China that you were in and apologize, apologies for my just total lack of awareness. It was Mandarin, right? That was, yeah. 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 So, and it was like Northern China, not Southern okay. China. So was that, um, Sort of, well, this kind of leads to my next question, which is um, you, you all talked about your, your various identities stateside and how you sort of see yourself and which parts of those identities were more magnified when you were on CLS. And I, want, I wonder, Jessica, speaking of the language thing is how were you seen in, in the eyes of, you know, the people that you were around as well, I think, given the differences in language. Yeah, I feel like Will and I were talking about this during CLS, how as a Chinese American, yeah. you blend in with the locals, but then on the inside, you more fit in with your cohort. It's a very interesting dynamic because I don't feel like you're seen as as American or like if you're walking with your CLS peers, it'll be like, who is this tour guide leaning around a bunch of foreigners? And that's you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Was most of your group um, Chinese American? Most of your no. CLS group, like what was no. the break, break it down like? Mm. I think there were three Chinese Americans Yeah. Um, out of, I don't know, 20, 25, 25. Yeah. yeah. Naika, what was, what was the breakdown of yours? I think there were only a couple, definitely like, I think around three as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember we were there when it was during the world cup and I think we went to go see a game and like we were all stood up for the national anthem and I remember like my friend was getting stared at they like <laughs> <laughs> so did you all feel well William do you want to sort of talk a little bit about how sure it's yeah. similar sort of yeah I agree with a lot of basically what Jessica said um but I guess I would just add to that it's you're you're constantly straddling this divide between being Chinese and being American you know like on the one hand the locals see you and expect you to be fluent in Mandarin, as Jessica said, um, you know, like the tour guide sense. But then as soon as you start speaking with kind of an American accent, starts raising eyebrows mm -hmm. and they get um, I, I guess they're just very intrigued. Um, you know, I guess we'll touch on this eventually later. Uh, but China, obviously a very homogenous country, um, you know, like 92 percent of the population is is Han Chinese, that the predominant ethnic majority. And I think it's just uh, that and they don't have the same, I guess, sense of like when when a foreigner appears especially one that looks like them it's it can be it can be kind of interesting <laughs> do you feel um that window to the world might um and i guess this is sort of kind of getting to what we were talking about before that that is sort of a consequence that might come of window to the world is expanding sort of like chinese perceptions of what diversity is even within these predominantly chinese ethnically Chinese American schools, there is tons mm -hmm. of diversity. Like maybe someone has a white parent, maybe someone speaks Cantonese, not Mandarin, mm -hmm. maybe someone, you know, as a heritage speaker, sort of how do you see maybe window to the world playing into how Chinese perceptions of Americans can become more nuanced, if at all? I think it'd be very enlightening for Chinese 
kids to realize that there, there's like a such thing, a, such a concept of a heritage speaker. It'll be like, oh, I always thought my American pen pal would be like Caucasian or whatever. But yeah. turns out my American pen pal is not Caucasian, you know? Yeah. And are you planning to, I guess, for some names, maybe it might be more recognizable if someone is ethnically Chinese or ethnically whatever. Are you planning to include pictures and stuff in the pen pals or is it a scenario where they might not know what the other person looks like? Like that is a very interesting non-2020 kind of vibe to just not know. I think the goal is to have uh, pictures. Um, okay. I guess the more the more we can, that is very interesting, but the more we can recreate that on the ground CLS experience um, right. as much as we can. So putting a face to the name, you know, giving them giving them a chance to really create hopefully a meaningful connection um, with someone from around the world. Yeah. yeah, eventually we were thinking of expanding to having pen pals like have a face to face video call with like a window yeah. to the world associate like on the call moderating, but just so they can see each other and actually talk, actually use the language in a real way. Mm. Wow, very cool. So is it is it it's not just you two doing window to the world, right? You have a couple other non-CLS um yeah but some of our team members are with, with CLS so two of our other team members uh both from the same program CLS Chongjun so CLS creating lifelong wow. bonds <laughs> yeah really and how are you all figuring out how to write this these curriculum I'm just sort of fascinated that you're and and establishes partnerships are you just sort of winging it or do, how are you doing it um well I guess I have a little bit of pen pal experience because of Fulbright ETA. I did do mm. pen pals with my students with a school in Thailand when I was there, but we're kind of leaning a lot on our advisors. So we have my coworker from my Taiwanese school, who's an elementary school teacher. She's helping out. And then one of my former college professors is helping out. So it kind of adds credibility to our lesson plan like that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, okay, you talked a little bit about being ethnically Chinese and in China. I'm curious if, I'm always very curious about the dynamics on CLS. So it sounds like there were very few ethnically Chinese or Chinese Americans mm. on the trip. Did you, like, what, did you find that you, I know you said you were sort of seen as tour guides, like guiding all these Americans. Um, <laughs> did you feel that that was pressure that your CLS cohort put on you? And how was that, did people see you as you speak better Chinese than I, like, was there that kind of dynamic put on? It sounds like you were friends with a lot of your CLS <laughs> cohort, yeah. which is really nice, but I'm, I'm curious about those dynamics if you wanted to speak to the kind of diversity within the group. Yeah, I think, um, no, you know, with the CLS cohort, I think many of the people that CLS selects are very, you know, upstanding people, people who have been, uh, a sense of, a great sense of cultural awareness. So, you know, the utmost respect from most of the, from everyone um, on our cohort, I think. But more broadly, um, the experience of being Chinese and learning Chinese in the classroom setting can be sometimes tricky. Um, there's this, you know, notion that if you're Chinese and you're taking Chinese, it's for an easy A, or, mm, or you don't have to definitely. try as hard. And um, so, and, and I guess, I guess it can be kind of demoralizing in that sense yes. because there's there's this sense that you like your accomplishments are there's an asterisk because you're Chinese yes. um and so so I guess you know in that classroom setting I kind of felt that um but it was never you know it was never from people on the CLS cohort so it's yeah, like I don't the... know Jessica you want to speak to that but yeah <laughs> yeah it feels like um if you and another person who's not ethically Chinese speak the same level of Chinese, people are shocked by this person's Chinese ability. But then with you, they're like, what's up? Like, what happened to you? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's crazy. I had a very similar experience. I one of my good friends from CLS was Jordanian, and I was in Jordan, and she spoke mm. such good Jordanian Arabic, and I spoke such baby Arabic, and I would <laughs> always get the the accolades, and she'd be sitting there in the taxi just like fuming, like. The, the, the only reason why we got a taxi, the only reason why we're in this car is because I did it. And I'm just yeah. like, I have, I have no idea. I have no idea what to say. But I, for me, I took pleasure in it because I got all the, you know, the reception. But it really, I think it took a, a serious toll on her. And then she started to question her own language ability and her own ethnic mm. heritage. And mm. um, it ended up creating some weird dynamics. So I'm curious now about sort of pivoting to more just diversity and inclusion stuff. Sure. Like we, we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion and would love to know if you all, if either of you have thoughts on what the difference is between diversity and inclusion, um, maybe how you see that, how you saw that manifested in, in China or in your mm. personal lives here in the States, just sort of how you define that distinction. Sure. I can, uh, tackle that first. I think uh, this is a problem that we grapple with a lot on college campuses, especially at a school like Columbia. I would argue Columbia tends to be a school that's very diverse, but not necessarily inclusive uh, mm -hmm. for many people. And this is that distinction of, you know, these schools really labor with great effort um, to ensure that they have a, a very diverse student body. Um, and, and, you know, for statistical reasons, whatever. Um, but if you actually think about how those students tend to be included uh, in, in sort of different facets of student life, whether that's leadership positions on campus boards, on, uh, you know, like student council government, then it becomes kind of a different issue. And so I think uh, diversity is, I, I guess diversity would be, you know, like having a wide variety of cultures, ethnicities, personalities, socioeconomic status, um, but inclusion is, is not allowing those diverse aspects to, I guess, define or impede a relationship, um, but but to actually make them feel, you know, welcome, empower those differences, celebrate them, et cetera. Yeah, I really like what Will just said. I think diversity is more of a passive situation, but inclusion mm. is something you actively have to try at. Mm. I love that. That is so, yes, I totally agree with that. And it's so interesting, you know, with um, <clears throat> everything happening now with police brutality and like the fight right. for racial justice. And it's so, you'll see these, if we're talking about academic institutions, so they'll be screaming from the rooftops like Black Lives Matter and they'll post it right. everywhere. And I'm like, where, you know, and then you see, I don't know if you saw like uh, Black and Ivory or something, the Twitter thread about being Black in academia and how it's just a disaster and how it's mm -hmm. like one of the most racist institutions. And uh, so that's really, in some ways, to your point, Jessica, I'm like, don't even pretend to be diverse. Don't get that fake credit if you're mm -hmm. not actually going to have inclusion. I'd rather you just say that you're a predominantly white institution that only caters to your white faculty and students. Like, I don't. Yeah. So that's been, and that's something that really... Um, has has frustrated me about CLS and about sort of um, cultural exchange in general is it's like from this white lens for the white students catering mm. to the people who can afford to be like from a socioeconomic perspe perspe uh, perspective right. from an educational background perspective. Right. Um, how do you all think, and on this podcast, feel free to be as honest or whatever as you'd like about CLS. <laughs> I think we, we're always trying to make it, I'm very harsh on CLS because I want it to be better. And I think mm. it has such a, the ability to be better. And for whatever reason, I think it's that certain people are sitting at the table making these decisions. You know, it's it's taking a slow, very slow um, time to make it, to make these changes. But I'm, I'm curious if on the program, like if you wanted to speak a little bit more to did you feel that you were given the right tools to sort of in, 
to, to be included, if we're talking about inclusion, on the program and to, to get your feet first in China when you got there and just to feel um, like a part of the group? Or did you witness within the group sort of issues or good things with when it comes to diversity and inclusion? I'd love to talk more specifically about like the CLS group and then the group within China as a whole. I think one thing that comes to mind for me is uh, programs like CLS. Um, I did the National Security Language Initiative for Youth as well, NISLI, um, mm. like CLS for high school students. Uh, and I think one thing I noticed and one thing that we work on, I'm, I'm like an alumni representative for Nisley Y um, because I think they do great work. But when you have a full merit-based scholarship uh, from the Department of State, I think that we should really be seeing a more diverse uh, set of like socioeconomic classes represented on the program. I think, um, I, I guess, you know, people on, on CLS, they come from really good families, really good backgrounds, really top tier schools. And I think, you know, that's obviously something to be expected, but I think what CLS, what your alumni society can do, what I try to do for NISLY-Y is to expand outreach um, to let other students know about these programs. I think a big thing is that people who aren't coming from these schools don't even know they exist um, because, I mean, it's literally free. And yeah, I think that's something I just add. Yep. I think there were, I've been like trolling all the CLS and Fulbright Instagrams being like, when they posted all their Black Lives Matter stuff, just like commenting me and everyone else being like, cool, this is fine. But like, what are you going to do about recruitment? Right. What are you going to, how are you, what's your outreach? Are you going to HBCUs? Are you doing this and that? It's like, right. and it takes so much more work to do that, I guess. But it's, yeah, it's the strategy. So as you think through Window to the World and those partnerships, um, obviously yeah. sli slightly different than sort of what we're talking about. The reach is much smaller. The scale is much smaller. You're working mm -hmm. with a specific subset of Mandarin immersive schools. Um, are you looking to do it? Do you find that the Mandarin immersive schools are within certain socioeconomic or geographic regions in this country? And sort of how how is that diversity within those schools? And, and are you maybe in the further steps with as the organization expands how are you planning to, I don't know if you've come up with a strategy or just a few thoughts about how to actually include all those different identities into Window to the World? I definitely think the Mandarin Immersion Schools are, the students and parents there probably are of a higher socioeconomic status. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is a fine place to start, but our goal is definitely to reach more public schools later. Yeah. yeah, that's something I've struggled with a lot internally. I um, It's obviously frustrating because I, you know, my initial goal, very na naive, probably idealistic, was to just go in and start teaching Mandarin to people who'd never heard of Chinese before. That was mm. my initial dream. And I, you know, I think I had to, you know, with Jessica's help and with some of the other team members, they, I think we, we decided to set, start with something more pragmatic that we could actually yeah. carry out. Give, some, give ourselves some credibility as an organization right. and then we can start, you know, one day reaching that, that goal. Um, <laughs> That's very interesting so. to, so it, we we have a variety of people on the podcast. Some people come with, they just threw themselves into the language because it sounded interesting and then they learned about everything else yeah, after sure. the fact. And then we have other people who started learning about Islam or started learning about like ancient Chinese history and then got into the language because they had this deep historical, political, cultural knowledge. I'm sort of curious, William, when, like, how do you think that it, it's very interesting to think about someone who comes from like bumfuck wherever America <laughs> to just like start studying Chinese with zero context and sort of what yeah. what immediate immersion and just like yeah. reality 
check kind of experience they could have versus someone who has that deep context. I'm, I'm, I've never really thought about that, but I'm very curious about what you think sort of like that could do if you just throw a language at someone in general, throw an immersive experience. I don't know if, if either of you have thoughts on. Um, yeah. Oh, definitely. And that, um, I, I think that's one of the driving forces behind, um, why we were hoping to do a pen pal thing. I mean, what made, I guess I can speak to what made me want to start studying Chinese. I think my experience um, was not unlike a lot of, you know, people who grew up, a lot of Chinese Americans will attend these Saturday morning Chinese classes. And I actually grew up with a deep disdain for Mandarin from an early age. Um, I, mm. you know, I did not like going to these classes. I was like, you know, like I want to speak English with my friends. Um, I'm, I'm an American, born in the US. And what really changed that for me was I earned a scholarship to study in Beijing in 2017 in the summer. And that, you know, that just opened my eyes to so many different things, meeting people in China. All of a sudden, those textbooks weren't just textbooks. They were ways for me to actually engage with people and live a life. I remember going to this Tibetan Buddhist monastery, um, the Lebrong Monastery in uh, Gansu, and it was just it was it was just unbelievable. Like I'd never seen anything like it. People were like walking around the monastery in the morning, spinning prayer wheels, um, part of like this ritual. And I just thought it was so interesting. I was like, I really want to learn more about this stuff. And so I guess with Window to the World, um, bringing it back to that, if we can just give students a sense that they can be working towards something like that, they can be working towards studying abroad. They can be um, working toward being able to speak with this person and connect with them on a deeper level. Um, because, you know, working for a textbook and working toward an A is insufficient motivation, I think, to learn a second mm. language. Yeah. Um, I think for our younger students, especially, it's really important to give them just like give them the knowledge that somebody actually speaks this language out there. And especially since the political conflict between the U.S. and China is you know, hot topic these days. Yeah. I think when a student actually has a friend from a different country, it makes it seem like, oh, what I hear in the news about this country, right. it's not like they're always out to get us. Yeah. You know, like regular mm -hmm. people don't actually think like that. Yeah, basing it in, it, all it takes is like one. <laughs> it's like you wish that people would care about things if they don't have a personal vested interest, but I don't know if like, from a psychology like human if that's if that's easy for us to do I feel like we have mm -hmm. to have even just one tie for us to be like oh gay people are fine or oh black mm -hmm. people like it, ta it yeah. takes some type of close friendship otherwise we can't we can't like visualize what that would look right. like which is crazy but um yeah so how do you all feel then when we talk about diversity and inclusion on your experience in China and William you talked a little bit about well both of you talked about sort of being ethnically Chinese in China and mm -hmm. what that brings like what do you how do you think that your presence on this trip and with people, if you have particular stories about sort of how you could see how people were perceiving you and how after a conversation with you, they might've thought different, or if you talked about this stuff explicitly with Chinese people um, when you were there and, and sort of what, how did you feel that you, like, how are you engaging with diversity and in, in those issues um, when you were on CLS? I definitely feel like the local Chinese viewed are ethnically not Chinese peers in a different light. They, I feel like they had a good sense of curiosity towards our peers, but not really towards us. And sometimes I feel like that's a little bit upsetting because you're like, oh, I'm a foreigner mm -hmm. too, but they don't care about me. I don't know. A little yeah. bit of that sense, a little bit of sadness, but also like I understand. 
So when you would tell people I'm American, you know, like what, what would you, would you ever, would they ever understand or would they just sort of write you off as like, like, would I, you I ever, feel like, yeah, I feel like they don't believe it. It's like, huh, okay. <laughs> but they're like, oh, they're not like, oh, they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, I, and, I think, uh, Maybe a, a very tangible real world example of that is, you know, crazy rich Asians booming success in the U.S. but flopped in China. And, you know, mm. one of the reasons for that, um, well, I guess there are two reasons. One being China didn't really like that ostentatious connotation that they gave to Chinese people because, you know, that counters a lot of their values. But another thing, you know, frankly, on a more base level is just that Chinese people watch movies with Chinese people that are made in China. And... In the U.S., if they still want to see an American movie, they want to see something that conforms to their notion of what an American is. And for them, I guess, understanding the gravity of crazy rich Asians for the Chinese-American community here in the U.S., they didn't quite get that. And that's not, um, I mean, obviously it makes sense. If we were in their position, probably do the same thing. Um, but I guess, um, you know, to go back to Jessica's point about that, I think it's it's frustrating, but I think it's also motivating in the sense that um, I found that if I can improve my language ability to, you know, be up to conform to their expectations, then like we have huge advantages as Chinese Americans being able to understand um, Chinese people because for all the, I guess, admiration that they give to foreigners, um, they will never see them as Chinese. They'll always be a foreigner. Whereas mm. for us, if we can reach our level to our language to that level, we can be Chinese. And I think, I, I guess a big thing for me studying political science is that I would like to see more Chinese American people make policy on China uh, for, for the Department of State, um, you know, in policy making circles in Washington. Um, and so I think that that gives me motivation in a sense. That's a great point. So you feel in some ways, and correct me if I misinterpreted this, that you as, as ethnically Chinese Americans, you almost have an in in some ways, if you can prove your prove your <laughs> worth or whatever you're proving, that's exactly to, right. Then yeah, you yeah. can actually get further, and so that that's really interesting. Naika, how do you feel about that as someone who studied Chinese? Who, <laughs> you know, clearly is not is is not Chinese or wouldn't be perceived as Chinese in China. Is that is that a dynamic that you also felt? I think so. I feel like when as we were talking about sort of this idea of complex identities, I I, I definitely sort of recalled an experience with on CLS where one of my closest friends, one was. Um, Chinese American, the other was was white, and I remember like whenever we'd go, it'd just be like so confusing, and no one would believe that we were all Chinese. I mean, all American. They were just like, no, 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 like you can't be like. I was clearly from Africa, but it was like. <laughs> And I remember, like, we'd hear, like, sangha yin sila, which means, like, three colors. Mm. And, like, people <laughs> at us, and I was just like, you know, and so that, this idea of, like, you know, but my friend, as soon as she would speak, they're like, oh, but, like, why don't you speak Chinese? Like, why can't you order, why can't mm. you menu? And we're like, okay, but, like, it, we can't. Sure, <laughs> 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 can you just, like, tell us what it is? And sort of, like, that sometimes would get very abrasive, and they'd be like, but, like, just explain to them, you're their tour guide. And it's like, no, like, our Chinese are all the same. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to eat some dumplings. <laughs> the three colors is crazy. That's crazy. Man, it's so, yeah, it's so interesting. Everyone has basically, everyone who studied in Chinese who's come on this podcast has said virtually the same thing. China presents very interesting uh, difficulties and ch challenges and just sort of like things to tackle is a good way to spin it, William. You're like, there. it's it's motivating. Yeah. Um, do you feel feel that there were things that we could learn from China about 
dealing with people who look or are or feel or whatever different and how that, that they, they do, that they have inclusive practices or ways of thinking that we can bring back to the States. Did you see any examples of that? I feel like Chinese people are very accepting of the fact that you don't speak Chinese. So like in America, I feel like if an immigrant came here, it's like, oh, why don't you speak yeah. English? You're in my country. But in China, you don't get that same sense. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, like we're, we're, we're going to help you out instead. Yeah. Do you think they do that with every foreigner or with people that they perceive to be American because of the American kind of allure thing? Hmm. I don't know. But I feel like in my experience, they were all they were always kind and understanding about language ability. Mm. Yeah. And I um, just just to add to that one thing, I think the U.S. should definitely learn. I mean, we, you know, with with programs like CLS and Nisley Y, these are steps. But, you know, as I mentioned before, China has a nationally instituted curriculum for learning yes. English starting from a young age. And I think in the U.S., that's spotty. You know, in California, some public schools will teach Spanish. Mm. And I think that is so important. Not only, you know, learning a foreign language has immeasurable benefits. Um, I just think there would be more of that, that, you know, fosters more of an acceptance of foreign cultures as well. And Definitely. I think in the U.S., I don't see why we, if our world is increasingly changing, you know, like the British Empire is not ruling over and making everyone speak English anymore. Like the world is a different place now. And I think the U.S. should, you know, not even even if it's out of selfish interest, even if it's out of making Americans that will go out and be <laughs> able to do international business. Um, I think we should be having our kids be learning foreign languages. Absolutely. Mandatory. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not all right for Americans to have an attitude where everybody else has to speak our language and we don't try to speak other people's languages. Exactly. That's what I loved about CLS. I, I felt like we were beating the odds by just being Americans that took language to that that degree. Yeah, because absolutely. Americans always are like, I studied Spanish for five years, but no one can speak a fucking sentence. You know, like literally yeah, yeah. no one can say anything. <laughs> and so for us to feel that we can, we've actually progressed in a language and we are, um, I, I, you know, bilingual, trilingual, whatever it is. Like, I think that's, we're beating the odds truly. <laughs> um, how do you, I'm really cu- curious about how you, what you think about like the kind of immersion school thing, since you say, you, you, it seems like you have sort of an understanding of that versus just language programs in public schools. And I see the merits for both, and I think both should exist, but I'm, I'm interested in sort of, I imagine you come out more fluent from an immersion school. Yeah. Um, yeah. But maybe it's also, I mean, I have no idea. I'm very interested in that dynamic, how you feel like about those, those various language programs and language tactics. Are they just two different strategies or does one do something that the other doesn't? And yeah. So I would say with the immersion program, um, I think I mean, as you you hit on, it's it's I think it's vastly different um, with with Spanish becoming another class in your mm-hmm. seven class schedule in high school. Yep. It becomes I'm studying it for the A. I want to get a five on the AP, whatever. Like those are great things. But when immersion half your day is going to be in, in Spanish or in Chinese. And, and in that sense, like you're not only learning. Uh, you know, how to order from a menu. You're learning science in, in Chinese, math in Chinese. Mm. And it's, it's just very different. I, I wonder, I, I don't know specifically, but I imagine the issue is partly just funding and political support. Ideally, we should be moving to more of an immersion model. Um, and I, I think even though we've talked about how China uh, does have, you know, um, they teach English in schools, even then, if it was an English immersion, it would probably be better because... Um, I think some of the students who learn English, especially in China, it's a lot of rote memorization. There's a lot of reading and writing. And so they aren't necessarily able to carry out, you know, a conversation maybe as well as they could be 
with an immersion program. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I feel yeah. very, I feel like a lot of mixed things when I think about teaching English abroad, um, because while it's mm. like, they say, if you, if you, mm. if you speak English, you are X amount of times more likely to have like a crazy higher salary. It's like some, mm. I don't know what the stats are, but you raise your potential income bracket exponentially by speaking wow. English. Um, and so I, and same with Jessica, you know, we went and we taught English in these right. different countries and I continually was like battling the, is this imperialistic versus oh, yeah. <laughs> equipping yeah. them yeah. with success? Yeah. And it's obviously very different if you do it in reverse, like American speaking Chinese, that's, that doesn't seem nearly as loaded, maybe politically, whatever, but mm. it, it seems like you're equipping them with, with cultural understanding and it doesn't feel as yeah, imperialistic. And I don't know. I was just thinking about that. If anyone on the call, Naika, Gabriel, anyone, if, if you all have thoughts about sort of the importance of, I guess, the world to know English for economic mm, or political reasons, but also kind of like the weirdness that it means like putting our culture and our beliefs on people potentially. And maybe it's just as a sensitivity in teaching or I don't know what that, but that's just yeah. an open-ended question that I struggle with. So I guess yeah. I thought of it in that way of sort of, I've never taught English abroad. I did um, teach it in Boston Chinatown to so sort of immigrants oh. and refugees. And I took it more so as sort of, um, so the, it was for nonprofit organizations working to get people into the hospitality sector. Yeah. And I took it much so as sort of, you know, providing, trying to assist individuals and sort of helping to better themselves, helping to um, sort of get a job, you know, that sort of would benefit their families. So I took it sort of differently in that mm -hmm. way. Um, and I, I guess sort of more so education focused because like, there were even people in my class where, uh, you know, sort of as I was going through the process of teaching them, I could see sort of that even within their own languages and within their own countries, um, they hadn't sort of pro progressed to the education level, um, you know, or literacy level that would be needed. So I guess I, teaching in um, English in America sort of mm. was a teaching for me. It was like a way of survival. For me, when I was in Taiwan, I think it was important that I showed that I speak Chinese because it's like mm. I'm showing I care about your language so you can care about mine, too. So it's kind of like a two way mm. exchange instead of me forcing my English on you. Mm. That's a really interesting perspective. And if someone maybe doesn't speak the language. Yeah, because then there are a lot of t American teachers that go and teach English and don't really speak the language, which is one thing. Sure. But I guess <laughs> if you show like a cultural right. appreciation and not I'm trying to change you, I'm trying to add color to your existing richness mm. or whatever it is that you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's very interesting. I mean, yeah, it's it, it's it's crazy because in Morocco they French is a second language for most people and French is obviously a Western language and is spoken by a lot of the world and is still not seen as nearly as prestigious as English, which is crazy. Wow. So like the the hierarchy of Western languages and English is just top of the top, you know. It's oh yeah. yeah. I yeah. definitely yeah. feel lucky to be born in America in that sense because everybody's <laughs> trying to learn my yeah. language. Like, yeah. it's, you know, it's yeah. like, like linguistic like privilege, right? That everybody else is trying to learn your language language that's right yeah I felt that intensely when I would like carry around my American passport the golden ticket and I would just yeah. like go everywhere and do everything and I'm like it's just sheer luck that's exactly. literally what it you know arbitrary yeah. it's it's so about anything that we talk about it's just luck like where your parents land where you were born <laughs> but as you all sort of create these curriculums for window to the world how are you like are you are you thinking about sort of cultural sensitivity and the language that you use to teach and how are you I'm just very curious sort of what goes into curriculum building. 
we wanted to do a kind of like a two-way exchange instead of just being like, oh, we are finding Chinese pen pals for American students. We're also finding right. American pen pals for Chinese students. Mm. So we're also actually creating lessons for Chinese students, like how to learn English, and at the same time, like doing the opposite. So we have two versions of our curriculum. Wow. Okay, right. that's great. And and are you um you said you're working with the teachers directly? How does are you training the teachers? How are you ensuring that they are, or are you just giving them the curriculum and being like, you have the skills, here are the tools, whatever? How are you sort of making sure that they're maintaining that sensitivity? Yeah, I, I think we're giving them supplemental lesson plans, I guess, um, to start off with a lot of these teachers who are teaching in Mandarin immersion schools. Um, I, I guess they've been teaching Mandarin for longer than we have. And so mm -hmm. I think we, we're just trying to help them out. Yeah. Um, I, ideally deferring to them though, mostly. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. That's that's good. It's like know when you don't know something and just <laughs> yeah, yeah. bring people in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think you all have really um, unique experiences and something that I surely did not experience on CLS. So I really appreciate you, you know, sharing and, and being vulnerable. And I'm I'm curious how it's already sounds like CLS and Nisley and Fulbright have vast, like really drastically changed your lives yeah. um, and how you think about things. But yeah. I'm curious how CLS and really all of these kind of cultural and international cultural exchanges has, has shifted your perception of identity and um, like colorism, if we're talking about, so the outward racial identities, um, mm. your own perception of being Chinese American, like how, I don't know if you can sort of sum that up or speak on that a little bit. For me, it was like Seattle has a lot of Asian Americans, so I didn't think too much of my think too much about my identity growing up. But after I went to China, I was like, "Whoa, I'm experiencing this for the first time," and I was like telling oh. Will about it <laughs> during the trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you felt so you didn't really you you felt different in China in a way that you hadn't before in Seattle. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Or? Definitely, yeah. especially amongst the cohort, because for the first time, I was really an ethnic minority within my cohort. Like my high school had a lot of Asian Americans, so I didn't feel that. Wow, that's very interesting. Okay, I, and what uh, about you? Yeah, I kind of had, I guess, an opposite, opposite experience with, from Jessica with the same result. Um, <laughs> I went to predominantly white uh, middle schools and high schools, and so I think I, I think there's a lot of pressure on on every immigrant family in the U.S. is like, do you do you try to preserve your heritage or do you try to assimilate? And I think for for my family, a lot of it was I think you should try to be an American and um, you know live as an as you know an American in that sense. Um, and so when I went to China, I this kind of happened more the first time I went to China. Um, by the time I'd gone to CLS, it was actually I was fortunate I'd been to China, Taiwan, and then back for the third mm. time. And so it was, um, but, but every time it's different, every time it's eye-opening and just showing me that, no, like I am Chinese and I really want to embrace that aspect of my heritage as well. Um, I think that's especially prevalent among Chinese families in the U.S., um, this idea of you see a lot of Chinese Americans who don't speak Chinese, Yes. Um, whereas, whereas with other uh, immigrants, that's not necessarily the case. And so I, I think with Win of the World, I'm trying my best. Um, <laughs> Make sure that that doesn't happen, um, that Chinese American students, I guess, starting with these Mandarin immersion students, appreciate that they're Chinese American yes, and yeah. the Chinese part specifically. Now, this just got me thinking about how, you know, your families might feel about sort of window to the world and your time in China. Um, I imagine maybe it's a mixed bag for parents. You talk about the whole slate of immigrants. There are people who want to assimilate, who don't want their kids to speak these languages. There are people who are 
ashamed that their kids don't speak these languages and that feel that their kids are too white or too American or whatever it is. I'm, I'm curious sort of what your families feel about you all, like throwing yourselves back into it and immersing yourselves in this. Um, I think my mom is supportive of it, but also I feel a sense of like, she's thinking like, I came to America. Why are you going back to China? I <laughs> yeah. feel like she feels that just a little bit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I got that. <laughs> what about you, William? No, my parents have been very supportive. Um, I think I've I've long hoped for a career where I'm using both Chinese and English. I do want to be someone who CLS is the first uh, of many things um, yeah. in, in terms of learn, keeping up that foreign language. Definitely. And, and especially, I guess, we're fortunate with a country like China. China's only going to be getting increasingly relevant um, in yeah. the world and business and politics. And so I think uh, I'm hoping hoping that I can keep using it. So, no, my parents have been very supportive, uh, but yeah. <laughs> you gotta um, apply for Fulbright. Yes, if you're not already planning yes, to do it. it. I'm like, I, I can see you doing some Fulbright that. political research and <laughs> yes, killing it. Yeah, I would love to do that. <laughs> for sure. Or you can straight up take Winter to the World and make it a whole thing. And, oh, you know, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jessica's like, do it since my Fulbright got cut short. Do it. Yeah, do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jessica, is that just what I've heard that Fulbright has like really just sucked at being communicative and that they're not. I mean, for CLS, everyone in the Facebook groups is like so pissed about how yeah. they're just going to offer it to be open. Like they're going to, you can read submit your application next year and that's it I don't know has Fulbright said anything they're not that's it right for your experience or yeah pretty much yeah and I mean they were they were nice about it but it was a little bit hard because for me like Taiwan was like handling the coronavirus really well and they were oh. like you gotta leave uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> so there, was no, there was no chance you could stay because you were oh, affiliated with the program or could you you're allowed to stay in country but Fulbright's it's like you are not affiliated with us anymore after this date so then for some people it was like oh I don't I don't know if I want to be in Taiwan all alone so, yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, what a what a crazy time Ugh, truly God. But, you know, in seeing sort of like the racism that has popped up with coronavirus from Trump and in this country in general, like window to the world and the work that you all are doing, these conversations seem to be all the more important to just <laughs> bring to light sort of, you know, be a window. Um, into, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, good, good yeah. name. Good name. Um, into this <laughs> Thank stuff Because it's like some people just truly have no idea. So, um yeah, I don't know. As as we close out, do you do either of you or both of you have any advice to particularly let's talk partic particularly to Chinese Americans who are on CLS, mm -hmm. but then more broadly mm -hmm. to to any people you know all people of color or from other minority groups who are traveling on CLS and are doing these immersion programs. Um, any advice about how to how to deal with it and how to tackle it and how to make the most of the experience? I think for me, I would say you will get questioned, and that's <laughs> that's going to affect you and ways that maybe you didn't anticipate, but you have to kind of view it as a way, like you have an opportunity to educate other people. And if you kind of take it like that, then it's, I think it's easier to cope with it that way. Yep. Yeah, I guess mine is is echoing the same thing, but take everything with, with a grain of salt, with a sense of humor. Um, I think, you know, Jessica and I talked a lot about these different experiences that we had. And just being able to confide in people about it is really nice. And, yeah. and as I spun it before, you know, I guess uh, you can use it as motivation if you're Chinese American. Um, it's frustrating to have that asterisk next to you uh, whenever you're learning Mandarin. Um, but I would say, like, really keep doing it because I 
continue to be surprised, honestly, by the number of Chinese Americans who everyone thinks can speak Mandarin, but mm, actually can't. Cannot. <laughs> and so I would say, you know, like, keep going. We need more Chinese Americans who can speak Chinese. <laughs> and for those who aren't uh, Chinese American, yeah, same thing. I'm sure Naika can speak to this too, but like, it's definitely a really exciting and weird experience to be um, <laughs> in China, a very homogenous country. Um, but yeah, it's it's really an opportunity to, to be, you know, a citizen diplomat, so. Mm. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, it really is. I think languages, learning languages is like such a superpower, especially if you can yeah. combat people's people's perceptions of yourself and be like, yes, bitch, like I do speak it fluently or I do whatever, you know, like it really is a good key to, to put in the pocket. And Absolutely. yeah, so, so uh, awesome. Thank you both so much for coming on. This is really, really great. Um, learned a lot and, and we'll be in touch. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to our podcast today. We want to give a special shout out and thanks to CLSAS and CLS Ambassadors for supporting this programming. And if you guys want to learn more about CLS or CLSAS or be on future episodes of the podcast, go to clsas.org and then the media tab. And thank you, listeners and participants of the pod, for being open-minded and willing to jump into these tough but important conversations.